1: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Anne O'Brien, who's a lecturer in the Department of Media Studies at Maynooth University in Ireland, about a new book, Women, Inequality and Media Work, which was published in 2019. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dave. Um, This is a fantastic book. Uh, It's both a book we need, you know, more than ever right now. And it's a really kind of fascinating um, text as well. Um, And I suppose that the place to start is where the book kind of came from and and where um, the kind of issues of um, women's work in media have have kind of um, come from in in terms of your research interests.
0: Yeah, I worked for a while in television production, mainly in documentary production. And while I worked for an independent company, I was kind of in and out of some of the broadcasters at different times and in and out of different other production companies. So I was quite interested in terms of what I observed around women, you know, at various points in their career, kind of how they progressed or didn't progress, my own experiences of getting into the industry, getting on in it. And so I suppose the book came out of a curiosity around women's experiences in television production in Ireland.
1: And then in, in, in terms of thinking about, um, I guess, the kind of the moment we're in, um, obviously the you know the kind of the moment for global media isn't just the question of what women's experiences, is um, but it's also a question of I guess like you know sort of stories of, of abuse sexual harassment um, and the kind of the me too moment.
0: It's been very interesting actually writing the book throughout kind of 2018 as I was because I started a lot of the research maybe back in 2011 and it felt like a bit of a specialist interest at that point point. Uh, I was kind of new to production studies and creative industries at that point. Uh, and so um, it was very interesting over time as I was researching different aspects of women's experience for events to kind of catch up with me. And in 2018, there was, of course, the Weinstein case. And then also in Ireland, we kind of had our own challenges to gender inequality. There was a big kind of controversy around our national theatre who were commemorating the uh, 2015 uh, In 2015, they were commemorating the 1916 Rising or planning for the following year. And there was a big controversy when 10 of the plays proposed for the National Theatre were written by men. Only Only one of them was written by a woman. And that started a whole kind of movement of Waking the Feminists. And it created a whole ripple effect right throughout a lot of creative industries and cultural sector around what were women's experiences of inequality. So while I had been working on it for maybe seven or eight years, it felt like everybody else had kind of caught up. And there's certainly a moment currently where there is a very strong kind of social movement underpinning activism around this particular form of inequality.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting this, that you've kind of highlighted the moments of resistance as, as the starting point, um, which is great, because obviously um, within the book uh, you detail major structural barriers to uh, women kind of getting in and getting on in media work. Um, but also, you know, I suppose the kind of hostility and, and in some cases misogyny towards women in media work. And it's great actually to foreground the idea that these structures are being challenged, they're being resisted, you know, that, that, that sort of, it's not just the kind of a, a relentless sort of story of, of structures that won't change.
0: That actually really came out of, I suppose, teaching gender inequality. Um, I do a whole module with our undergrad students on media and gender inequality. And, you know, at the end of us studying all of these forms of inequality, students would often ask me, so what do we do now? You know, what are we meant to do when we look at all of this uh, inequality? And so it was, it was really important to me to be able to find some way into that story of resistance and of women's activism around change and the threads of that are there going back to the 70s, into the 80s, the 90s, where women are constantly kind of questioning at various points, you know, why don't we have as much airtime? Why is there not equal representation? And then to be able to look at it within industry was also really great. I think the last chapter of the book documents some fairly radical shifts in thinking around gender and gender inequality that have happened in Ireland in the last year or two uh, or three years from our film board and from our broadcasting authority have really gotten up to speed around kind of implementing measures to improve the situation
1: I mean there's there's probably two um, maybe more theoretical things to to pick up Um, Mm -hmm. and and one of those uh, is the kind of I suppose this term of sort of like idea of subjectivity Um, and uh, as you've mentioned you know at at the end of the book um, a particular sort of feminist subjectivity comes through uh, in terms of both resistance and demands for change but at the same time the subjectivity experiences uh, what we might think of as the kind of segregation of women's careers and you know women experience uh, what you call vertical and, and horizontal segregation so could, could you talk me through uh, i guess the kind of the idea of the subjective experience of how the media industry operates
0: Yeah, I was interested to look at the kind of structural inequalities that women experience and the culture of the industry that can serve to exclude them. And part of that interest wasn't just to kind of describe the industries, but to look at how women and different groupings of women or different individual women internalize that experience. So sometimes I think as maybe sociologists, we come at inequality as if everybody experiences it in the same ways all of the time. And I wanted to drill down into that a little more subtly and look at how perhaps various women experience inequality and what they do with that. You know, how do they internalise it? When faced with all of these challenges, how do women survive the industry, but how do they thrive in it as well? Uh, So maybe to just start with mapping some of the structural inequalities. You know, the Irish industry is quite small. We have a public service broadcaster, commercial broadcaster, Our film industry brings in maybe 150 million a year in uh, foreign investment and would employ about 15,000 people across screen production in Ireland. So quite small and with a large sort of independent production company cohort there. So it does bring all of those, I suppose, neoliberal exigencies with it. You know, people are very conscious of reputation, the networks are small, um, and all of that stuff is very live for the women working in industry. Well, what I began to see was that if you look at our national broadcaster, RTE, um, they would claim to have a gender equal workforce and they do have 48 percent of their workforce is female. But when you look into those figures, women kind of predominate in a lot of the production support roles. So stuff like broadcast coordination, production management, those types of roles. And there's still a preponderance of men in the more technical roles. And that was mapped into experiences that a lot of women told me about when they're starting out in their careers. You know, one young director in particular talked about being an intern in a production company. And she said, you know, every time a new piece of camera equipment came into the company, the guys would all be shown this equipment and shown how it worked. Even though she had made it really clear she was interested in directing, it was as if they couldn't quite equate her wanting to direct with these sort of sponsorship and mentorship practices that go on all the time almost invisibly or without big notice um, for the men in the company. So there was those kind of channeling of people into various roles um, and still that happens globally and it happens at a European level that men still dominate in the technical roles of media production and women still predominate in more of the production support or kind of news gathering roles in media internationally. There's also then a kind of a vertical segregation in the Irish industry. The European Institute for Gender gender Equality uh, did a study in 2014 and they found that only 12% of people in leadership roles in Irish media were women. So a very low number there. And that sort of maps into the current kind of salary scales within our public service broadcaster. The predominance of people on the higher end of salary scales are men and women again dominate in the kind of lower salary scale brackets. So there's all those kind of structural Divisions that uh, exist within the industry in Ireland, and I was interested in how women experience them and how they map into them, and what they do with them in terms of their own internalisation of those experiences.
1: I mean, it, it's sort of tricky, this, isn't it? Because on the one hand, what you want to give is an accurate description of uh, how the screen industry in Ireland functions, and you, you know, you go and speak to people and, and, and you know, draw on their stories, but At the same time, you know, these are stories of people seemingly kind of acting, I guess, sort of rationally in response to incentives and and, and barriers. Um, But these, you know, seemingly kind of like rational activities give rise to major structural inequalities. And and one really good example of this is how sort of talent spotting, mentorship, sponsorship, you know, kind of saying like, you know, that person would be good, you know, she could do this. Uh, But in contrast, you know, the sort of sense of, yeah, but, you know, perhaps this guy might be a better director or a better producer.
0: Yeah, there was very much that kind of cultural piece as well, where there was a sense that um, there was a kind of bias or prejudice about women and what skills they had and what they could do and what they were good at. And even very senior directors who would have directed internationally for maybe some of the UK broadcasters would talk about going for a particular commission and funders just vetoing them. Because there was a sense that, well, as a woman, you're not going to get this story. This is a guy's story. This is a bromance. When, of course, it doesn't work in reverse. There's no sense that men can't get women's stories or can't tell those stories. So women always faced that kind of prejudice against or bias in terms of what it was believed they could do. And sometimes there was a bias that never seemed to work really to their advantage Uh, you know there was a sense that women could take on and should take on a lot of the emotional work involved in production. So for production to work well you know the relational wheels need to be greased and need to be kind of well-minded. It's a very kind of collaborative industry, it depends on good relationships, it depends on good communication, depends on people interacting well and there was an expectation I found a lot of the women named that they would be the ones to do that work. Um, But yet that type of work wasn't overtly acknowledged as being work. It was something that was sort of rendered invisible when the women did it. It was seen as sort of coming naturally to them. So in addition to doing whatever roles they were doing, they were expected to do this invisible emotional work. But then they were never explicitly rewarded for it, which meant then they weren't promoted or that work wasn't valued as much as it should be in industry. And in addition then to taking on that invisible work, there was certain work that was kind of believed women couldn't do as well as men um, in terms of, I suppose, a classic piece around directing is the most obvious kind of role where women in Ireland and internationally really struggle sometimes to get the funding for their first short, certainly for their first feature. And then even if those are successful, um, they struggle subsequently to get funding for a second feature, to direct a second feature. And there's a big gap as well with the advertising industry, not necessarily taking women on to direct there, which is where a lot of film directors kind of up their skills in terms of kind of directing commercials. So there's all those kind of structural and cultural barriers that interact together to very subtly kind of exclude women and put them in this sort of funny in-between place in the industry where they're doing the work, they're doing really great work but they're never quite normative. They're never quite insiders because of gender. Um, So that was an experience. And like you say, it's hard sometimes as a researcher to distinguish what's anecdote, what's one person's experience versus, you know, an overarching structural pattern. But certain things just kept coming up all all the time amongst the 60 interviews I did, articulated in different ways. But nonetheless, um, kind of created this sense of a pattern of experience that women kind of shared.
1: I mean, the, the really good example of this is around caring responsibilities. And I mean, this, this is, you know, sort of, we're, we're at a moment where there's quite a bit of academic literature on this, where the assumption that women are both, you know, a kind of like a bit of a risk because they might have children. And then the working cultures, the hours that, you know, not even kind of subtly, but, you know, overtly hostile um, to, to raising children. And then the question of, well, I guess the kind of, or maybe not the question, the assumption that, well, it's sort of natural that women want to be mothers, so um, they should just leave, you know, they should just kind of like go and do another thing in the media industry, which again brings us back to some of those, you know, sort of more hidden um, and maybe unacknowledged um bits of work and and that actually I I think uh came through really really strongly in that as you say that sort of not tension but you know the kind of the problem of of hearing these these stories over and over again and then realizing actually there's a a structural barrier that comes um, with parenting and care
0: absolutely you know a lot of everybody suffers a screen production industry that's very intense it looks for people to work long hours kind of requires you that you leave your home life outside of set. It's very inflexible. You know, as one woman said, you know, there's no such thing as a sick child when you're on a film set. You have to be there and have to be present. And that's very much the same for men in the industry as well. And I suppose that's intensified, if anything, over the last decade, that expectation of complete availability. But I suppose the difference in terms of how that's gendered is that for women, Uh, The National Women's Council of Ireland did a really interesting study in 2013 called Who Cares? And it found that women in Ireland do 76% of all care work. So in addition to women doing their film or screen production work, they are also doing a disproportionate share of the care work outside of that. And like you say, then, that has all sorts of very subtle knock-on effects whereby, you know, if they're parenting, they are seen as being maybe less committed, um, even when there's no grounds for believing that. Uh, Women talked about coming back off maternity leave and their roles having changed or having shifted completely. There not been an obvious re-entry for them. They didn't go back to the same jobs that they had left. Um, So there was all sorts of ways in which uh, the women suffered because of their parenting role, but also, like you say, because of the expectation that they might one day be parents. Um, And I suppose that works in other industries outside of creative work as well. But for me, there's a fundamental problem with excluding mothers from cultural and creative industries because we're excluding that whole perspective. You know, it's so important in the creation of cultural artefacts that we are representing all kinds of uh, different groupings of people in society. And to exclude mothers from cultural production, to me, is really profoundly problematic for any society.
1: And at the same time, there's that sense that, the motherhood problem, in inverted commas, or question, oh, that explains, you know, all of gender inequality. Um, and again, you know, one of the sort of many really strong things about the book is the way that it is quite systematic about, well, actually, um, if you look, what you find are not just, you know, segregation, not just questions of care, but actually a series of of kind of um, stereotypes and biases um that women experience that go well beyond the kind of question of well you know how do we create networks for mothers to come back into the film industry or you know how do we deal with say childcare uh, costs on set or, or something like this And I think you um, kind of draw out uh, the idea that you know there's a particular kind of acceptable way of being feminine um, there's you know a, an issue about women not getting credited. Uh, and then there are, you know, you mentioned the kind of types of content uh, they get associated with already. But I was, I was very interested in that kind of sense of, of stereotypes and biases that go beyond um, what the film industry is is kind of capable of, of acknowledging around uh, questions of uh, motherhood.
0: Mm. It is interesting um, to talk, I suppose, in particular to say some of the television presenters around what was expected of them as television presenters, as women. And they did talk about how, you know, if they maintained a particular type of body weight, a particular type of look, uh, if they had the kind of sleek outfits that they felt it was rewarded by giving them kind of more serious work. And equally, then other presenters talking about no matter what they did on a, you know, if they were co-presenting with a, a male colleague, the heavier, kind of more serious political content, all the sports content would go to him and she would be left with all the kind of more fluffier content. And then film directors also talked about how the kind of more arty, feminine and emotional style of content was something that was readily associated with them. But then that that locked them out of where a lot of the power and money is, which is maybe more in the action kind of film genre. Um, And so women, in terms of how they presented physically, in terms of the type of work associated with them, in terms of expectations as well around them always being kind of likable. That was something that came off one respondent who used a really interesting term called reputational terrorism, said so how she constantly lived under fear that somebody would kind of present her as not being likable or not being easy to work with because this was so important um, that she be seen as somebody who was always upbeat, always positive, always ready to engage, always being available. And yet at the same time, uh, she would also suffer these slights uh, of, you know, having maybe produced or directed a series, she would be fobbed off with an associate producer credit or an attempt will be made to give her a lesser credit or her daily rate will be questioned in ways that she was really clear didn't happen to male contemporaries. So it is kind of a death by a thousand cuts in a lot of ways. A lot of these Gendered experiences that the women had aren't necessarily very big issues like sexual harassment. They're smaller, more subtle, but they're relentless and they're everyday. And I think, particularly for women who are also mothers, there's a whole kind of push and pull that goes on there. There's a lot of those dynamics kind of pushing women out of the industry. And then sometimes all it takes is, you know, a kind of a dearth of care support at home or an increase of the burden of care work at home. And that serves then to pull them out of industry as well. So between the push and pull, I think a lot of the times women who had other care responsibilities were particularly vulnerable to having to you know, leave, but not because they proactively wanted to go home to look after children, but because of all of these very invisible, kind of very unnamed dynamics that sat underneath their working lives, which sometimes the women themselves weren't necessarily very conscious of as being a form of gender discrimination against them.
1: I mean, it's you know the, the example that you give there is is in stark contrast to how whole swathes of um, particularly the film industry are, are still thought of uh, in gendered terms. With you know the idea of the kind of you know auteur director who you know is a notorious tyrant on set or or something like this, or you know a, a particularly kind of you know badly behaved yet perfectionist actor. Um, all of which are you know not just sort of. Um, Given the nod or or allowed uh, when the um, behaviours that come from men, but are sort of you know they add to the mystique and genius, whilst at the same time, as, as you describe, you know, uh, women are sort of you know worried that they won't be seen as team players, won't be easy to get along with, and in a highly networked profession, that means they won't work again. Mm. And you know, it, it is difficult to sort of draw this stuff out when. And again, you know, the, the book is really great on this, when, when the industry is still kind of thinking in, in terms of, I suppose, responses that are um, at best, you know, kind of like, what well, we think of it like, you know, legalistic or in terms of career development, you know, that kind of stuff, rather than saying, actually, maybe we've got a really big problem that the industry is structurally sexist in a way that it privileges certain behaviours and, and denies others.
0: Yeah, I think it's a question for anybody who is interested in gender equality or interested in feminism. Are we looking for a film industry that simply allows women in to behave on male terms, to behave like auteurs, or to be otters? And I think that's OK in many ways. But I don't think it necessarily addresses the problem, because I think, as you say, that's still rewarding, you know, hierarchies is still rewarding a very masculine way of working. And it was interesting to unpack with some of the women who were quite conscious and aware of gendered dynamics in their work to talk to them a little bit about what they valued in film production and how perhaps it could be a little bit different and how it would be less auteur driven, less hierarchical, uh, less masculine, I guess, in, a way, in its way of being and how it could perhaps incorporate things that they valued like undoing hierarchy being more collaborative, kind of connections with co-workers, a form of work intimacy that a lot of those film directors uh, and producers, women working right across in all kinds of different roles within the industry, really valued about their work. So I think sometimes if we're to have kind of a feminist project of change, it's to look for a more radical change in what we value in terms of film production or in terms of film output, and what we value about who we involve in that, and I think the kind of fetish for that authority theory that kind of credits all of the production to one person, and anybody who's ever been on a film or television set knows it's massively collaborative, has really not helped greatly. I think in kind of a change agenda.
1: I mean, that, that change agenda also um, is bound up with sort of, um, as you describe, the subjectivities. Uh, of your participants and thus you know women in the film industry and and this was really interesting actually because a lot of the literature um, has been heavily engaged with um, I guess what they call the problem of of post-feminist subjectivity um, in creative work Um, and you encountered a a couple of I suppose different kinds of subjectivities you know some were post-feminist some were more neutral some had you know a more kind of like sort of outsider status and it'd be interesting to hear about um, how those subjectivities play out in the context of this, um, you know, building a movement for change.
0: Yeah, I think it's always really interesting when you start to get frustrated by your own experience in interviews. And there were a few people who I interviewed where I felt like, oh, that didn't go very well. They really didn't know what I was talking about. Uh, Some, And it was ne- not necessarily younger women or new entrants that could be kind of fairly mature, fairly, very successful women sometimes who would kind of simply deny that there was any gendered dimension to their experiences of media work. And as I was interviewing them, you were kind of almost simultaneously revealing this fact to them, um, pointing out the dearth of female presenters or the statistics on the number of directors or even the amount of airtime that women get, say, in Irish media. And it was like it was all news to them. But even though I would present them with those facts, they would still kind of deny that there was any issue. And they would look at the industry very much from that sort of individualistic experience. Well, I'm doing okay. Gender has not been an issue. I don't think it's a problem. And that would be kind of the nature of the uh, exchange I'd have with them. And then there was a second kind of person who could see that, you know, there were gender inequalities and could look back 20 years ago and appreciate that women really didn't have it very easy and that it was difficult for them to get into industry, but that that's all sort of fixed and sorted now. And that strain of response kind of very much fitted in that mold of work that, say, Ros Gill, Christina Scharf are doing around kind of that form of neoliberal stuff, disciplining and that was certainly in evidence and there was myriad ways in which women kind of disciplined themselves in order to achieve and blamed any failures on the self and policed the self and blamed the self and had lots of explanations for why they needed to do things differently or better and then there was a third form of subjectivity where women had kind of what I called liminal subjectivity where they were kind of insider outsiders kind of betwixt and between they were insiders because they were often doing the work, doing it really successfully. But they could see how sometimes they were still placed as outsiders by, na- by virtue of gender. So a film director who goes for a commission and doesn't get it because, well, we don't think a woman's right for this. Um, they could just see where gender came up and where it came live and became problematic for them. And I thought that that liminal positioning was really interesting um, because it allowed women a space in which they could kind of observe what was going on. They could you know, get on, work in the industry, but at the same time see that there was inequality there. And they weren't interested either in denying it, nor were they interested in that neoliberal self-disciplining to fix it. They kind of had a separate position again um, that allowed them to hold a space where perhaps a different practice or a different form of film practice could be taken up Um, which, yes, sometimes was peripheral, but sometimes they were quite mainstream workers as well and quite successful within a traditional sense of the industry. And it could also allow them to begin to think a little bit about the need for activism and the need for change. So there was quite a broad spectrum of responses to this idea of there being gender inequality in screen production. Women who would outright deny it, despite working, say, in all-male departments, there were women who very much fit that kind of Rosgill Gill model of kind of neoliberal, post-feminist, self-disciplining responses to experiences of inequality, and then there were these kind of liminal women who were more maybe reflective and interested in how the way film could be made might be forced to change in order to accommodate greater diversity.
1: And obviously, that's you know a form of resistance, isn't it? You know, even if it's framed in a Um, a partially aesthetic um, or or practice-based response. It has to
0: start there, I think, Dave. Like We can't build movements for change if people aren't willing to own at an individual level their own experience of inequality. Because I think we learn so much about inequality through our experiences of it. But if you're in denial that you are experiencing it, then there's no space to open up anything that can be more collaborative or more concerted uh, campaign for change. So I think that kind of movement towards perhaps a social movement for change or towards unionization of some form has to start with that internal dialogue as to where people situate themselves as individuals in this. And I think it's a really interesting site of tension and conflict because of that neoliberal exigency that demands that everybody individually answer their own individual shortcomings and I think that's why the liminal subjectivity is much more interesting. It doesn't place the blame on the self. It looks outside of that to uh, kind of see where change might come about.
1: I wonder if you'd just expand on that, because, I mean, that, that's very much the back end of the book, isn't it? You know, the, this question about um, collaborations, connections, working beyond formal structures that, that produces both critiques of the industry and uh, and also alternatives to it. So it'd be nice to kind of uh, hear a couple of examples.
0: Yeah, I suppose there was two things going on in parallel, and one kind of happens at a more macro level, and we can talk about that, which were big policy changes and campaigns for change, and that kind of you know movement towards a collaborative, collective uh, attempt to generate change. But it was also interesting that individual women, at a more micro level a more internal level, but also start to think a little bit differently about sometimes what the film industry meant to them. And some women, instead of striving to kind of get into industry, they started kind of working almost outside of it or apart from it and just focusing on trying to make the work they wanted to make, uh, sometimes earning a livelihood outside of the industry altogether, either through education or other things, uh, whilst keeping a filmmaking practice that they felt could have integrity could be the films they wanted to be Um, because women would talk about getting frustrated with going for public funding and maybe being told that their film wasn't narrative enough um, because it didn't follow a three-act structure with the kind of climax at the end, uh, which those respondents named as a very male way of thinking about structure, uh, whereas some of the women spoke of their narratives being a little bit more circular. So they kind of got tired of not fitting the mould and not meeting the criteria. And so in that, they began to make films that were in and of themselves quite different and didn't really fit the industry standard. Um, now, of course, that means they get a little bit marginalised, perhaps, and peripheral to the mainstream industry. And that's not a territory I think we should concede. But nonetheless, for other women who were quite mainstream, who, you know, end up being Oscar nominated, they spoke uh, about collaboration being massively important to them. And as a director, being very challenged, by. they buy oftentimes male crew members, that they weren't decisive enough or striding enough or dictatorial enough. But the women simply refused to be that way. They were going to have conversations with people about the film, about how it should be shot, about how it should be directed. It didn't mean that they were indecisive. They knew what they wanted, but they were willing to listen. That's something that came up an awful lot was women's capacity to listen to all parties involved and kind of negotiate and deal relationally in a different way to perhaps some ma- male directors who might be more hierarchical and, as you say, kind of behave badly. Uh, so there was different ways in which what they prized shifted and changed, and a lot of that was around the relationships and just enjoying working with particular other people who they would then always use to crew their productions. And they talked about the relationships that built up there and the value of them to them as women, which isn't a discourse that we hear an awful lot. You know, if when we look at film text, there is a lot of focus on directors and there isn't as much emphasis sometimes on just how collaborative filmmaking and television production are, that it's always a team based endeavor. It always involves groups of people. Women oftentimes manage those groups really, really well, can lead those groups really effectively. But it's their practice of doing that isn't always something that's recognized as leadership because it's not done in a stereotypically masculine way which is kind
1: of a hierarchical way. I mean, one of the things that comes through really strongly is that these, uh, I suppose, counter examples are not just about the film industry, but they're about Irish society much more generally. And I guess maybe as a, as a point of conclusion, it'd be interesting to reflect on, on the way that uh, there's a particular... It has to to call it a kind of feminist moment in Ireland, um, but there is a particular moment in Ireland, um, and it'd be good to hear about how the book uh, relates to contemporary feminism in Ireland, and um, you know maybe beyond, and and how things like you know sort of an alternative uh, non-masculine way of leadership or, or making decisions, you know, uh, uh, a very different style of, of, of practice. Uh, might tell us something about where contemporary feminism is in Ireland.
0: Mm. It was really interesting that, you know, during the year that I was writing the book, there was a lot of activism going on within the film industry and also within television. So there were a lot of policies generated during that year. So there was a sense of trying to keep up with the change as I was writing the book. Some of that change, you know, is so recent. Um, Susan Liddy did some work on the Irish Film Board back in kind of 2015 and maps that discourse of them simply not really understanding what this whole gender thing was about, uh, really no engagement with it. But within a few years, the film industry had kind of had a shift of personnel and were quite proactive about generating you know, acknowledging firstly the data didn't look good, you know, it, between 2010 and 2015, only 16% of films have been directed by women, um, writers, similar sorts of statistics. And they began to see this was a problem. And they began to do something about it, which was to issue a policy that kind of put their money where their mouths were, insofar far as they were aiming for a 50-50 balance across funding uh, for filmmakers, gender balance in funding. So that was great to get those policies in place. That was followed subsequently by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland also looking at its own allocation of funding and e- examining the data on that and, again, attaching funding to female crew and cast in productions. So in a very short space of time, there was kind of an Irish chapter of Women in Film and Television internationally was, was uh, founded here. The dire- Directors Guild and Writers Guilds had an equality action committee And they were very proactive about petitioning for this change. So there was a whole kind of um, constellation of organisations all working with a lot of overlaps amongst them to generate quite a big policy shift in the Irish context uh, between 2015 to 2018. Um, It remains to be seen where that goes. There have been some shifts around funding, particularly successful, say, around short film funding. But the policies aren't necessarily getting the traction that we would like in terms of implementation. So I think there's a bigger piece of work to do there. But I think it's important to look at the sort of timeframes that gendered change takes. And I think we all want to see change in four or five years. And, you know, catchy titles like 50-50 by 2020 are really attractive. But actually, for systematic and very profound change to occur, I think it needs a much longer time frame. And I think that is something that Ireland's going to have to kind of grapple with a bit more. We've had fairly radical shifts in very many ways um, in Irish society and in the creative industries. But I think for a more sustained longevity of change to occur, it's just going to take a longer time frame than maybe we're kind of mentally prepared for. And I think there's still that question underpinning it that, You know, we can change women's incorporation into the industry. There can be more women working in the industry. But is the industry going to change to adjust to women's presence there? You know, I think including women in an industry that is still difficult, still doesn't welcome them, still doesn't value them as much as it should, is problematic. And I don't think that's ever going to really work. I think there's a need for a more fundamental cultural and structural change to occur within the industry to make it a more amenable place for women to, to work and to survive and to thrive in.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is one of the most powerful things about the book. I mean, there, there are many great things about the book, but it's, it might be in the introduction or fairly early on you talk about you know, the need to kind of um, bring these um, experiences and issues to light in a way that is systematic and means – it can't just be sort of you know ignored as like oh that's just one person's story or or, or actually worse as, as we tend to encounter now. Well, we know this already. You know we, we we don't need to hear these you know kind of research projects anymore. But actually the kind of you know presentation of very um, structured and very systematic outline of the hidden sort as well as the more kind of practical barriers means that the challenge to the industry is, as you say, not just, you know, give us a program that will change things in a year, but how are you going to change so completely that the issues you've highlighted you know, kind of don't, don't carry on? Which I guess brings me to a concluding question about what you're doing in terms of your own work. Uh, you know, you mentioned the genesis of the book. I well, was a while ago and you, you were writing it over the last year. Um, are you thinking about, you know, more... Um, Projects like this, further books in, in this area, or is there, you know, kind of a completely different topic you're interested in?
0: Well, the next project in this area that I'm interested to work on speaks to that question of motherhood and how, because I don't think we've really documented that very well to date. There's some people doing great work on it, Natalie Rayford's work, Susan Barridge, um, are writing some really interesting pieces around that, but I think there's scope to unpack where how mothers experience film production. Um, much more profoundly and in a lot more detail. So I'm working currently on an edited collection on that. And then the other piece of work I'm doing looks at representations of domestic violence in Irish media, femicide in particular. And I'm interested to connect that back to how journalists go about reporting it. So it's still very much in the field of gender, but just looks more at gender-based violence, how it's represented, who's doing that representing and how we might need to shift and change that discourse as well so it's a little bit maybe outside of creative industries but also speaks to that concern about women being included in production and not just uh, in terms of their actual presence but in terms of a kind of more feminine perspective and more feminist perspective on our media industries and in terms of what gets produced and who gets to produce those kind of cultural artifacts.